Evening, Dan. Evening, Omar. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you doing? All all right, thank you. All all right. I've realised, you know, what we haven't done for a little bit is uh, some Champions League predictions for the end of the podcast, which make me look usually very silly (laughs) and you usually quite good. Uh, I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. Certainly on the predictions, I'm not sure that's necessarily the the case in terms of how good... um, Mine are, but uh, yeah, no, it's uh, getting the Champions League scores up at the moment. Actually, in terms of what's what's on this week, you lose track, don't you? Uh, oh yeah, Liverpool, Liverpool, pretty much going out. We can get into it at the end of the podcast, um, but uh, yeah, I think there's a couple couple of easier ones this week. Just looking at the the aggregate scores, indeed. And and on Champions League. Um... I wouldn't say Adam Crafton saved us this week from the Athletic, but um, I think it's probably fair to say that this was actually something that piqued both of our interests at the same time. And we, um, as we delved into this and a bit of the the preparation um, for this evening, now it sort of re- we realised I think that we could go off in so many different directions with the sort of notion that you know Champions League as from the season after next is structure is changing significantly, you know timings might as well and one of the things that you had sort of um, mentioned was this sort of challenges that are going to be facing um, UEFA in, in its Champions League, either from a, a timing perspective, from a, a format perspective, from an entry point perspective as well, from a fan development perspective. And it would just be great to get your views on any combination of those points um, as a means to then maybe have a wider contextual discussion for um, this idea that Adam was talking about in terms of Champions League actually staying in Europe or what the chances might be for matches being played abroad? Yeah, it's really interesting, this story, because I think, um, I mean, it has to be said that I, I suppose the, uh, there are football executives out there, I think it's safe to say, thinking very different ways to the average fans and the average fan in this country thinks about football. And, and this story, obviously, the fairly provocative headline of will the Champions League stay in Europe um, is certainly one that will... Um, Peak interest. If you look at the comments below the line, the Athletic, you can see what the kind of existing fan base of um, of European football clubs think of it, which um, is a perfectly legitimate view. Um, but I think the the kind of general backdrop to all this is obviously, um, you know, I, I think for a lot of European clubs, they they see um, English clubs kind of streaking away um, and in almost becoming a bit of a super league, the Premier League, in terms of the kind of depth of quality. Uh, of the players and of the teams and of the ownerships as well in terms of the depth of wealth at those ownerships. So uh, this is why obviously the, the Super League table, a Super League conversation never really leaves the table, certainly for, for the three clubs that were really instigators of it. Um, but then there are obviously other clubs that are more inside the UEFA tent, um, PSG being one, Bayern being another, um, who, who feel like actually that the source for growth isn't necessarily breaking away entirely, but actually doing it through the the confines and and, and through the structures that exist through UEFA and obviously the Champions League is is central to that. Um, and this this is obviously about revenue. This is about revenue growth. It's about making the, the clubs as big as possible and uh, and um, as famous as possible, if you like. And obviously there will be a number of people that disagree with that premise as the core purpose of a football club. And again, that's a perfectly legitimate view, I think. Um, in many ways, you reflect back on the development of the game and, and this kind of commercialisation of football has happened, if not by stealth, and certainly not with kind of fans necessarily consenting, um, certainly in, in England. So that there is this kind of perspective I think is worth calling out. But, but if we are focusing on 
on revenue growth and you're looking at the Champions League, there are a few issues with it. The most obvious of which is that it's played in midweek. And if you look at um, domestic leagues um, and when they play midweek games compared uh, to weekend games, you typically see audience figures fall by about half um, on, on average or so across leagues. It varies by league. Um, and so clearly if you only have half the amount of people watching a game in, in midweek, um, then you're, the consequence of that is you're realising something close to only half of of the revenue you can realise through sponsorship income and through um, broadcast income. Match day is slightly different because generally attendances don't fall off as much um, in midweek as, as audience, as, as viewership, but, but it's still obviously a, potentially a small drop-off. So that, that you got the issue of, of timing there with the Champions League, and then obviously there was, that was the reason why they moved the final to a Saturday, probably about, I want to say about 10, maybe even more, 10, 13 or so years ago, um, to a Saturday, because obviously on a Saturday evening, um, you get more audience. We'll get into the international side of that um, in a moment. Um, I think the other thing with the Champions League as well, and, and this is, uh, you know, you've got the format changes coming up, but it's when do you watch the Champions League? Um, the group stages, I think, by a lot of people's reckoning, has become a bit stale, a bit dry, um, relatively predictable. Uh, I thought they were all right this year. I think there were some really interesting groups. Um, you had uh, the Spurs group, which, which was really dramatic in, in the end, and very closely fought. I think all four teams had a chance of going through. Uh, you had Liverpool's um, group, which kind of developed um, towards the end, um, with Liverpool competing with Napoli. Um, but, but by and large, you look at most of the groups, and I'm, I'm kind of looking at the standings here, they're pretty predictable. I mean, the, the fact that um, Group H, Benfica and PSG, both on 14 points, Juventus on three, Maccabi Hyper on three, is kind of a sign of the lack of jeopardy in that group, although it was a lot of jeopardy for the first place, which, I've said, which was consequential. Uh, but, but, but that, I think a lot of people feel, has become a bit stale, and that's why we're moving to the Swiss format, um, which I personally think is, is very interesting. I think it will create a lot of jeopardy on the final match days. We've, we've written on this before. I think there's um, there's actually not as many dead rubbers as you might think in, in the format. Um, and because you've got essentially, you know, all these eight groups merged together, you get quite a lot of cliff edges around the different points of tension around eighth and 16th place. Um, so that's, you, that's the same. Omar, thank, and could you just, if it, even if it's just, a, I know uh, it's about maybe a whistle-stop tour, but for the new format, for those maybe that didn't hear, Last time, actually, we did a whole session and section on it. But, you know, what what actually will happen from the year after next, I think, as you rightly corrected me, from 24 onwards, what, what is this sort of Swiss model that's going to be put in place and how actually in practice would it look that much different? Obviously, we can talk about it more at length, but a bit of a, yeah, a quick overview would be fantastic too. Yeah, so there'll be, I think, 36 teams will be the increased number of teams. And this is across all UEFA competitions. So we 36 teams will be divided um, into four pots of nine teams um, and everyone will play um, a kind of balanced schedule across those pots. Um, so across 10 match days, you'll play, um, if you're a pot one team, for example, you'll play a couple of pot one teams, a couple of pot two teams, a couple of pot three teams, a couple of pot four teams and the final two teams, I think, will probably come from um, maybe a pot two and a pot four and I think that will vary depending on, on which pot you're in. Um, so you'll get a kind of balanced schedule. You won't play everyone. You won't play 35 matches or, or even 70 matches um, in the season, home and away. You'll play 10 teams, five home, five away. Um, and it'll be a nice, uh, in many ways, I think it'll be a nice mix. If you're Liverpool, you might this season have played one match against Dortmund, one match against 
uh, Zagreb, one match against Sporting, one match against Atletico, um, and you get quite a lot, large variety of, of opponents over the course of those match days. Uh, and at the end of the 10 match days, everyone will be ranked. Uh, top eight go through straight to the round of 16. Next eight are seeded for a playoff round. Following eight, i.e. 17th to 24th, are unseeded for the playoff round and, and then the bottom all go home. So no feeding into the Europa League anymore, which um, in some ways I think is a shame because actually I think the quality of the Europa League is boosted by having, for example, this year Barcelona feed into that competition. Um, but yeah, it will be slightly different. But I, I genuinely think once fans get used to it, I think it'll be quite intriguing. And so that was that was brilliant and uh, reminded me of a few extra particular elements that um, you know I forgot actually. And that variety of fixture list is going to be fantastic. Actually, I think. Do you think that that helps the overall product in that there will be so much greater variety of matches rather than just those group matches where everyone's playing and then it becomes that sort of quasi you know uh, knockout. Com- cause I see the knockout competition at least from the the last sixteen onwards. Yeah, I think it will be more interesting. I think uh, if you're a Spurs fan this year, obviously it was great to be able to top your group and go through, um, albeit then go out the next round. But I I think Spurs fans would have felt like oh, it would be nice to get you know PSG or Bayern or you know in the end they've gone out the Champions League and they played Frankfurt, Sporting, Marseille, and, and Milan, um, which you know is is you know obviously big clubs there, but they're not. They're not your super clubs that sometimes you, you want to be up against and pit yourself against. So the fact is, in another season, Spurs would have played Frankfurt, Sporting, Marseille, Inter, Bayern, Pilsen, Bruges, Atletico, Porto and, and Ajax, which which in some respects is a kind of more interesting fixture list. So I think um, there will be benefits to that. And, and I think, um, I don't know if many broadcast deals have been announced for the 24-25 season, but I, I, I imagine that um, UEFA are obviously hoping and the clubs are hoping for an increase in the deals that they win. So we've gone through in terms of sort of challenges on sort of format and one of the points that Adam obviously touched on in the article was um, will Champions League stay in Europe? One of the one of the reasons for that sounds like was um, uh, Al-Khalifi Khalifi, um, the uh, PSG Uh, chair, I guess. Yeah, I think chair. Um, Mentioning that, you know, in some ways, um, the timing of the particular matches isn't fit for particular markets like the US, Asia in particular, that also he was looking for, you know, the Champions League weekend effectively to mirror uh, Super Bowl elements. Um, You know, where, where do you stand on those types of points? And um, will the new structure, you know, make any difference to that at all? Yeah, so the, the new Swiss system won't um, impact that because it'll still be a midweek competition. Um, there'll be more midweeks taken up in the autumn months. So obviously there are consequences there in England for the League Cup, for example. Um, but but I think, yeah, this kind of concept of um, Super Bowling the Champions League final, uh, I'm not entirely sure what that necessarily means. I, I think obviously the, they've introduced like a... Um, what was it? A, a kind of I don't know what you call it—a concert, a, a kind of a song and dance at the start of, of last season's Champions League final, which of course was kind of badly, um, kind of a, almost a bit tone deaf to everything that was happening outside the ground at the time. So it didn't necessarily go down that well. I, I just wonder if it fits in with with European football culture, and this is probably why you know a lot of talk about going overseas, where it might be kind of 
better received. But ultimately, I think you, your core fan base, um, which is in the, the hundreds of millions, is, is the one to be to be looking after. So, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm yet to yet to be convinced what a kind of Super Bowl um, f- format for the Champions League final looks like. Um, but clearly, the, the kind of prospect of playing games overseas or playing the Champions League overseas, i.e. in another continent, a Champions League final, I think is certainly something that is not that far away. It feels like very realistic, um, just from the perspective of being able to take this enormous brand and grow it. And, and you know, whenever something lands on your doorstep, you, you are more aware of it. It's like when the Olympics is on your doorstep, you, you, you take much more interest in it. You know, if there's a world championships in a particular sport on your doorstep, you take more interest in it for that period of time and maybe you stay sticky with that with that sport over a period of time. So that's that's the thinking. But I'm, I'm interested to get your view on what how broadcasters might think about it, how fans and clubs might think about it as well. Well, I think um, my first thought actually I had when you were just speaking about then was um, when we were talking in preparation for the, for the pod, I actually hadn't really considered the possibility, I guess, of two things which you'd mentioned. The first is um, whether a Champions League final slash Europa League final or and or Super Cup could then take place outside of the traditional European stadium, which is, I think, obviously closer than everybody thinks. It's probably fair to say the same with Super Cups, for example, too. And I guess that feels like the first step rather than um, actually having group games or knockout games before the final where one team is basically giving up um, home advantage to the benefit of a fan base that might not that they might obviously have a, a huge fan base in the particular country but obviously won't have um, home stadium advantage so I wonder whether just on that point Omar if I could put the briefly back the question back to you which is I presume the easier um, um, structural change would be for a final or a pre-tournament to pre-season tournament to be um, outside of UA for jurisdiction and then at some point almost like NFL has done um, with games being played at, at Wembley and now at the Spurs stadium where almost the home team are getting paid additional compensation to take the game on the road um, in exchange for home fan uh, or rather home, um, you know, um, strength. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. So I think there's a few different options. As you say, the finals won. I think they obviously had that tournament in Lisbon, which was, I think, even some quarterfinal matches, I want to say, um, were played at neutral venue. Uh, quarters and semis were played at neutral venue in, in 2020 during the pandemic. So that could be another model. Obviously, you'd lose the two legs, um, which... I have to say, I think the Champions League quarter semis two-leg format is unbelievable. I think it's such a great watch and it would be such a shame to lose that. Um, You should also be careful what you wish for sometimes in that if you play one-legged ties, particularly at neutral venues, you might have underdogs going through more regularly and actually that the clubs that uh, are seeking greater revenues through kind of more European football might find themselves uh, getting knocked out early in the competition. So a little bit of careful what you wish for there. Um, so that's that's one option, um, so kind of final and then semi-finals and maybe even quarter-finals um, played overseas. The other option, I, I think the Swiss format lends itself better to playing neutral venue games. Um, so you could have four home games, four away games and two neutral games as an example. I, I think it, it lends itself better to that just because 
um, if you think about it in a current group stage, trying to play neutral games, it becomes quite messy the way that how, how you decide to do that. I think um, you would have, I don't know, take that Spurs group again. Spurs might play Frankfurt uh, home and away neutral at neutral venues and Marseille would do the same with sporting, but, but it's a bit, it's a bit clumsy, I think. Um, and also it depends on the seedings and so on. I, I think you could potentially with the way the seedings work on the Swiss model, say that, I don't know when pot A plays pot B or whatever, that certain games are away. There'd be, I think there'd be a way around it. Um, not that I must say I'd, I'd be an advocate of it. I think it's, um, yeah, kind of Champions League nights at a certain stadium is um, is kind of obviously got a lot of value. Although, you know, again, with 10 games, you increase the number of home games from three to five. Clubs aren't necessarily losing out on revenue as much. And in fact, they're already gaining revenue if they're in the Champions League now. So that's the kind of equation I think clubs will be trying to square with some of this stuff. And also, you know, you'd need proof that this actually did grow uh, fan bases over time, which... Um, you know, for for example, playing playing the NFL here in in London over a number of years, I think has helped the NFL. But you know, where where would you take the Champions League? Would you consistently go to the US? Um, can you go to Asia when you know you might be playing those games at a at a different time of of day? You know, that that's another consideration. If you go to the US and still playing midweek, would you have to play at kind of four in the afternoon midweek in the US who would turn up to watch that? There's a lot of kind of unanswered questions on some of this stuff that would need to be worked out and it isn't just details. I think it's kind of fundamental to the commercial model. Well, on that point, I think that's, yeah, exactly a fair fair one because, you know, we've all seen, as Liverpool fans, we've seen, you know, Liverpool, for example, go to Australia and the Far East and sell out some of the, the huge Aussie cricket grounds, I think, over for over 100. Is, was it right? I remember, was it the MCG? That's right, yeah one of the games a few years ago, if I remember correctly. But obviously that that feeds into the balancing act or the playoff between timing, format and commercial, um, I guess, all round. And, you know, it was the same point, if I remember correctly, that Richard Scudamore raised for game 39, which I guess could be taken either way, which is, you know, is, is the Champions League, um, you know, for the express benefit of those Champions League fans or clubs fans you know are, are we in a position now where granted all of the different federations might have a very different say and view and slant on that but you know do the rest of the world and the fans from the rest of the world want to see real competitive games be played at um you know, closer to home, bearing in mind Champions League and Premier League is, um, you know, seen as some of the, the most elite sports in, in the world. And you talked, if I remember correctly, about that in preparation again on that sort of entry point of fan development. So I'd be, again, interested in your views on, you know, this idea that it, we are, you know, we're so blessed in a way that we're in Europe seeing the premium product week in, week out, but that's not the case for everyone else. Does everyone else, not deserve is the wrong word, but does everyone else should have the ability to be able to see more competitive, live, compelling action um, apart from otherwise a very uh, pricey uh, plane ride over to Europe at particular times? Yeah, and this, this is the kind of big question that I think football, elite football is grappling with at the moment is is what... You know, if the if the sport is to grow, um, and and for you know for clubs that that is important, that is um, you know something that ownership groups are looking for, then 
that growth is, is going to have to come from international fans. It's not going to come from your existing fan base. And uh, if it's going to come from international fans, then you've got they, in many ways, you know, some of those things aren't compatible with, with your existing fan base, um, you know, particularly around timing of, of games, but even things around like where players are recruited from or the way that you communicate or the way that you brand yourself. You know, a lot of that is at odds and, and will alienate um, existing fans. And I think... Um, it's it's as much a philosophical argument as anything as to the kind of uh, you know quote unquote value of of domestic fans versus um, versus kind of international fans. Um, you know there there is an argument. You know in, in other industries there are you would argue that whatever it is kind of belongs to a, a wide set of people. So if, I don't know music as an example. Um, you know, and this may be an unfair comparison, but you know a particular artist in the UK, you wouldn't say Ed Sheeran is necessarily kind of belongs to the UK and therefore as a kind of obligation to, to UK fans over the US fans. Now that again may, may not be the perfect analogy, but um, that's the type of kind of question that um, these ownership groups are grappling with. And yeah, and it's, it's why it's throwing up these questions. What, what I do know. So it will, it will cause a lot of, uh, a lot of challenges, uh, but, but I think it's unlikely to be, as shot down as the Super League was, just because some of these things are potentially easier to do a bit more by stealth. You know, you can do one international game, it's, it's not seen as bad as, as kind of breaking away altogether. Well, I think that's right. And again, that got me thinking about that. I wouldn't call it a slippery slope, but the, the first iterations of the thing, I'm sure will happen in time. Like we, you've talked at length, haven't you, which I've you know, found fascinating around for example, how, what you could do with the Super Cup before the beginning of the season and have it between men's and women's uh, teams, for example. But I guess the other thing could be, you know, it, it's already at a particular place in Europe, so why couldn't it be in Dubai or why couldn't it be in Japan or why couldn't it be anywhere else? In the same way, I guess, I know it's very different, but I presume when the Club World Cup, the FIFA Club World Cup comes back around again, that's obviously going to be um, a global event uh, in a global location. Granted, it's UEFA and then UEFA playing in national, its own, one of its own national associations. But I think on a scale, you would say that type of hosting is much more likely to happen in the short term. Whereas, um, and, and then a final hosting, it's effectively at a neutral venue again, is more likely to happen in the, the medium term, perhaps. But what is obviously more difficult, as you said, even with the Swiss model, is um, the, the, the sporting tradition of home clubs playing at home and away clubs playing away and that integrity of competition element I still feel comes quite strongly into the mix which is you know how do you balance that integrity of competition element where you have in Swiss model as you said five home games which you you hope that the bigger teams hope that they will win or the, the smaller teams hope they'll win because they'll have that home stadium advantage and at what point does the crossover between sporting chance and victory um um and I said calculate is the wrong word, but play off against um, the possibility of receiving more prize money in order to give up a home game event to take that on the road. Yeah, exactly. I, I think, um, yeah, I, the moment you start impinging on sporting credibility and integrity, uh, I think you, you, it's very hard to quantify it, but I think you do lose a lot of fans um, very quickly. 
um, particularly if you've already set a precedent of sporting integrity. I, I, one interesting example for me is is the hundred in cricket, which is you know a new, uh, relatively successful sporting competition kind of launched from scratch. And that you would argue there are issues of sporting um, integrity in that competition because. Um, you play your local rival twice in that. Um, you play eight games. There's eight teams in the competition. You play four home, four away, and within that, you play your local rival twice, as an example. But no one's really kind of flagged that as a major issue just because it's a new competition that that precedent hasn't really been set. So I think it's quite, um, uh, yeah, it is an important thing to kind of factor in and, and shouldn't be completely dismissed. Um, the other thing which you mentioned there is, is the kind of Super Cup um, element, which... Again, I, I think I've said before um, on our discussions that I just think Super Cups are so outdated now. And I, I, just don't, I, I can't remember the last time I watched the Super Cup, um, even if uh, you know Liverpool were in it uh, or an English team were in it, I'm just really not that interested in it. Uh, and But there is space. It's the one thing that you've got a little bit of space for in the calendar, so can you do something with it? Um, and I'd say the same with the Community Shield in, in England as well. I just don't think it's, you know, this kind of concept of, of winners of the two competitions really works anymore. So whether it's about integrating the women's or whether it's about trying something with the rules of the sport or just something to make it different, I just don't think it's a meaningful trophy at the moment. Um, and I don't think it generates enough interest outside of, you know, it being for another cup. So I think um, if I were... Uh, in UEFA's shoes, that'd, that'd be one of the certainly one of the things I'd be considering. But I'd be reluctant to, as is being described, oh, let's just have four of the best teams. Let's have Real Madrid, who won it last year. Let's have um, Man City, PSG, and Bayern playing it because then it's just it feels a bit like an invitational and again has that friendly kind of feel. So not an easy one to get right, but I do think there's space in the calendar to do something a bit more innovative there. Well, a couple of minutes left, Omar. Um... Not that I like putting you on the spot, but I do like putting you on the spot. Um, we've got uh, some really interesting fixtures um, in the Champions League for this week coming. Me, the idealist, always dreams of a, a nice Liverpool comeback, which um, I think it's probably fair to say is extremely unlikely at the Bernabeu um, on Wednesday. Made, I guess, I'm not sure easier or worse I think probably easier at first instance by the fact that there's no away goals rule anymore so it's not five away goals that Madrid have got um, but at the same time they look like some great really great games I guess three possibly hanging in the balance with if I've got this right Porto Inter which is 1-0 to Inter Man City Leipzig which is one all Napoli Frankfurt 2-0 to Napoli and then obviously the outlier Madrid or massive favourites to go through against Liverpool any, any interesting tidbits you want to take us through for that, for any of those games at all? Yeah, so I think, actually, I think City-Leipzig could be closer than um, people think. So Leipzig, we've got them as the 10th best team in world football at the moment, um, you know, not far off the level of PSG, uh, a little bit off the level of Barcelona. So, you know, a really good team. And, um, yeah, again, the away goals rule probably, or the dropping of the away goals rule probably helps them a little bit there because they haven't conceded that away goal um, so could easily I think see them uh, they're, they're quite an attacking team so when I say like hold out Man City I can imagine you know another one all or two all draw or something at the Etihad so that might go um, further than people think I think Porto Inter really interesting game again two really good teams Porto we've got as kind of comparable quality to, to Man United so a very good team Inter um, 12th best team in, in the world so I think that'll be 
a good tie, higher quality than you might otherwise expect. Napoli should go through against Frankfurt. I mean, we've got Napoli as the third best team in world football now. They are a seriously good team. And, and Frankfurt, very good, 22nd in the world. Um, but but obviously a bit of a gap there. And then, yeah, Liverpool Real Madrid. I just can't, I can't see... Uh, I can't see Liverpool getting the three goals um, needed. Although I, I remember there was um, Liverpool loss, was it 3-1 at home to Chelsea? This would have been about 15 years ago. Um, was it 3-1 at home? Yeah, I think 3-1 at home. And that was with the away goals. They needed to win by three goals at Stamford Bridge. And they, they didn't come far away from doing it. But I think uh, that Chelsea team, is, it, or this Real Madrid team, is a totally different um, kettle of fish to that Chelsea team. So what you're saying is there's a chance, Omar. I am saying. saying there is a chance. I'd have to look at what it was on Betfair, but I imagine it's uh, it's non-zero, but not much bigger than that. Perfect. Well, mate, great to chat as always. Love that insight and um, looking forward to chatting again soon. Cheers, Dan. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs please do subscribe to the Dundeal football podcast like share and tag me if you like the content if not my voice you'll probably also like my book Dundeal an insider's guide to football contracts multi-million pound transfers and premier league big business a bit of a mouthful it's available to buy in hard copy digitally and via audible all links are in the podcast show notes lastly podcast is powered by 13 which is a fashion brand i've started all proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by john Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years you can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt hoodie cap or all three please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk that's 13shop.co.uk Thanks for listening.